Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's Friday, February 9th. The war in the Middle East is now 126 days old. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. It is hard to believe that this war is now more than four months old. I know there is exhaustion out there, but not here. We might be tired. I mean, heck, I dragged my us out of bed at 5 a.m. today, but the FDD team is still fired up to bring you a 20-minute news roundup every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so keep tuning in. In a few minutes, we'll hear from my FTD colleague, David Daoud. He's a senior fellow focusing on Hezbollah. He's got Arabic skills that make me a little jealous. He'll be talking to us about what he's watching in Lebanon. And spoiler alert, yesterday was a nutty day on Israel's northern border. But first, to the southern border. You've heard me talk about Egypt before on this program and the diplomatic battle that is looming. When Israel starts fighting Hamas in the town of Rafah on Gaza's southern border with Egypt, the IDF is likely to find tunnels or even other infrastructure that helped Hamas bring weapons in and allowed the group's leaders and fighters to come and go. The Egyptians are warning of a diplomatic rupture if Israel goes in, and this has to give Israel pause given that the Camp David Accords is the oldest and maybe maybe even the most important peace agreement that Israel enjoys. But Israel doesn't have much choice to take Rafah if it wants to destroy Hamas. This is common sense. This is the Hamas Alamo. Don't get me wrong, the Egyptians do have some legitimate concerns. They don't want Hamas militants flooding their border. The regime in Cairo truly fears the Muslim Brotherhood, of which Hamas is undeniably a part. The Egyptians also know that when Palestinians establish a foothold in Arab countries, Chaos usually follows, whether the Black September crisis in Jordan in 1970 or the Lebanese civil war in the 1980s or even the expulsion of Palestinians from Kuwait during the Gulf War of 1990 and 1991. It's never been pretty. But no one is talking about a massive population transfer here. In fact, a little bit of coordination could prevent that. Then there's the White House's bizarre position here. No, I'm not talking about the president's goof last night when he called Abdel Fattah Sisi the president of Mexico. I'm talking about National Security Council spokesman John Kirby, who went on record to say that Israeli military maneuvers in Rafah would lead to, quote, disaster, unquote. This comes amidst reports in the New York Times where U.S. officials are saying that the fighting in Gaza is far from over and that it could drag on for months, maybe years. Well, guess what? The Israelis can bring this war one step closer to completion with the conquest of Rafah. The war will wrap up more quickly if the Egyptians actually help Israel fight what is left of the terrorist group that sits on both of their borders. And the war would definitely end faster if Washington would facilitate this coordination rather than parroting Cairo's talking points. I can't tell you what awaits in Rafah, but I do know that the defeat of Hamas will be incomplete until Rafah is taken. The looming kinetic and diplomatic battles promise a fair amount of drama. Now for your headlines. Headline one, the IDF continues to operate in the West Bank. 
Just last night, I was watching reports on Palestinian social media about arrests of students from Bears 8 University in Ramallah. I watched video of IDF vehicles entering the town of Nablus. The list goes on. More than 3,000 arrests have been made in the West Bank since October 7th, and as many as 400 terrorists have been killed there. This is a front unto itself, folks. We don't hear a lot about it day to day, but there is a serious operation underway. A trusted source told me this week that there are currently more IDF battalions in the West Bank now than in the Gaza Strip. And that's logical. There are some 400,000 Israelis living in the West Bank who require protection. And to that end, the Israelis are working to provide economic inducements to the Palestinian Authority to try to keep things calm ahead of the month-long holiday of Ramadan, which begins next month. Headline two, Jordan's monarch, King Abdullah, is slated to visit Washington on Monday. Brace yourselves, folks. The king is fired up. His wife, a Palestinian, has been nothing short of vitriolic toward Israel, and their message plays well among the Jordanian population, which is perhaps 85% Palestinian. The government in Amman refuses to admit that the percentage is quite that high, but whatever the actual number is, this explains, at least in part, why Amman has accused Israel of all kinds of terrible things over the last four months. Israel's coldest peace is now downright frigid, and the king could very well take it to sub-zero temperatures next week. The White House needs to get a handle on this. The peace agreement between Israel and Jordan dates back to 1994, and it's crucial to the U.S.-led security architecture. Allowing Abdullah to spout off on Israel in front of the White House press pool strikes me as flat-out irresponsible. By the way, just imagine if the tables were turned and Bibi got up in front of the cameras in the Oval Office and spouted off about Jordan. It simply wouldn't fly. Here's hoping for a bit of sanity. And headline three, Texas A&M University announced last night that it would be cutting ties with Qatar by the year 2028. A lot can happen in four years, so we need to keep watching this. But I must admit, this news item made me smile. Qatar, a state sponsor of Hamas that has provided the terrorist group with $30 million per month for the better part of a decade, has also plowed somewhere around $6 billion into American higher education over the last decade. Yes, billion with a B. What a tiny country of 330,000 citizens once from our education system, I can't say. In the case of Texas A&M, though, I'll just note that this is a major nuclear research institution. The influence of a terror-sponsoring state is simply something that cannot continue. Congress is gearing up to demand more transparency from all of our universities. Many already suffer from a credibility problem. So let's hope that A&M is the start of a trend. Inshallah. I now want to welcome David Daoud. He's worked for other shops around town, like United Against the Nuclear Iran, or uh, Iwani, and the Atlanta Council. Today, he's an FDD senior fellow focusing on Hezbollah in Lebanon. And after a crazy day of news out of Lebanon, I can't think of anyone better to bring on the program. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me on, John. All right, well, let's get into it. Israel targeted two senior Hezbollah commanders yesterday. What is, first of all, what happened? And then maybe just tell us a little bit about Israel's posture and what you think the possibility is of a war in the North. Mm. Um, so look, I mean, this is the first uh, strike of its nature on the city of Nabatiya, which lies north of the Litani River since 2006. And I think that in and of itself is significant. Add to it the fact that we're talking about 
two of the most senior military commanders in Hezbollah. Um, Abbasid Dibis was described as a Redwan unit uh, regional commander, and Ali Karaki, even more importantly, was described as a member of the Jihad Council, um, and perhaps even Hezbollah's senior military figure, period. This, this signals uh, a lack of, his, uh, I guess, Israeli patience is running out with Hezbollah's now 960 plus attacks into northern Israel over the course of almost well, over four months. Um, the fact that these two senior commanders, it appears, were not killed. Looks like Adel Kedake had man managed to leave the car before the uh, the missile struck and that uh, Abbasid Dibis was given emergency treatment at Sheikh Rahab Harab Hospital. They both seem to have survived. That's secondary to the fact that Israel was willing to kill these two very senior members and bear what we know would have been heavy consequences from Hezbollah. That suggests to me that the Israelis are done with these constant attacks on the northern border. Yeah, and, and by the way, I mean, you know, something like 900 plus attacks, the Israelis are officially saying 700. Um, I, I think if we actually count all of the rockets, missiles, drones, and everything else, we're probably up over 2,000. But yesterday, Hezbollah fired back in response to this attack with something like 30 rockets that, uh, that, that came into Israeli airspace. There have also been reports all morning, I was watching Israeli TV, of drone infiltrations across the northern border. You've been watching Hezbollah from day one. I mean, they started attacking Israel on October 8th. How does the group in Lebanon view a possible wider war with Israel? What's Hezbollah's perspective? Look, I think they'd rather avoid it. They've said this. At the same time, I think they want to push right up to the brink. Um, now, that carries with it a lot of risks, as we know. This this type of brinksmanship is exactly the scenario that led to the second Lebanon war. Snowball effect, it's, it's called. Sounds cliched, but that's that's the reality. And I think right now they would, again, rather avoid a war given Lebanon's domestic constraints, um, given the fact that uh, you know there's an economic crisis that's still going on. There's a compounded with a political crisis. Uh, Western donors uh, and the Gulf states have signaled that if they're not willing to, to bankroll uh, Lebanon's irresponsibility anymore, especially if Hezbollah is the one leading it. Um, so I think taking all that into consideration, they want to harass Israel as much as possible, divide its forces as much as possible, impact the economy, uh, impact citizen morale, but you know avoid uh, avoid incurring the, uh, the 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 requisite cost. And this is kind of how Hezbollah generally operates. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, we, we continue to hear about uh, how Hezbollah might be saving itself for maybe Iran's dash for a nuclear weapon, that that's the ultimate insurance policy, that Hezbollah is going to save those 200,000 plus rockets and all the advanced weaponry for perhaps a battle um, to secure uh, Iran's uh, ultimate weapon against Israel. But let, let me just turn to Lebanon for a minute, looking at Lebanon's role in all of this. This has prompted a spirited debate within FDD, as you know, over the years. Can the government in Beirut restrain Hezbollah, as the White House hopes, mm -hmm. or is it too late after decades of Hezbollah influence making Lebanon and Hezbollah essentially one and the same? Look, I won't say they're one and the same. I do think that the equation of Lebanon equals Hezbollah equals Lebanon oversimplifies the matter. At the same time, um, Hezbollah is, a, as they say, a critical social and political component of Lebanon. Um, in the last parliamentary elections, they garnered 356,000 votes. Uh, this was 150,000 votes more than the Lebanese Forces Party, which came in second in terms of numbers of votes, number one in terms of seats. Uh, because of the seat division. But 356,000 votes out of a country of just over 4 million is not something you can ignore. It's just a massive part of the Shia population. 
Um, recent statistics uh, polling from our friends over at WinEP showed that something like 89% of Lebanese Shia strongly support Hezbollah, 93% support it to some degree. Right? This is a voice within Lebanon. Now, with that in mind, uh, given how Lebanese decision-making is taken, where everyone at the table has a voice, Hezbollah is at the table, what you're essentially doing is having to ask Hezbollah's permission to disarm uh, or to move north of, Lita to, of the Litani. And last time I checked, individuals, countries, organizations tend not to uh, shoot themselves in the foot, particularly not one as savvy as Hezbollah. Yeah, I tend to agree. Well, I mean, let's talk about moving north of the Litani. What do we make of U.S. Special Envoy Amos Hochstein, who, by the way, I think uh, was born in Israel and mm -hmm. uh, maybe even has, has served in the IDF, I heard he served in South Lebanon. Um, yeah, I, I've heard that yeah, too. And yeah, so, uh, yeah. you know, he's got this effort underway to broker a new understanding based on old understandings, UN Security Council Resolution 1701, um, along the blue line, trying to push Hezbollah north of the Latani River, trying to get them to do it without being bombed into oblivion, right? In other words, a diplomatic agreement that all sides just simply say, sure, let's not go to war. That doesn't seem like something that Hezbollah would agree to. But, I mean, what do you think? Can Hochstein actually pull this off? Look, I think we both agree that diplomacy is preferable to war. Peaceful solutions are always the ideal option. At the same time, let's not be taken in by things that are ultimately illusionary. As we said just a second ago, uh, Lebanon can't disarm Hezbollah. Um, this isn't David Daoud saying this. This is Lebanese Foreign Minister Abdullah Habib just on January 17th saying, you know, trying to disarm Hezbollah, restraining it without its uh, without its consent would lead to civil war. Leaving it armed would lead to regional war. And every time he would pick civil war over regional, or sorry, regional war over civil war because of the implications for Lebanon. That's the calculus. Um, so any attempt now uh, to push Hezbollah north of the Litani is going to have to go through the Lebanese government, which seems actually more interested in using Hezbollah's attacks on Israel uh, to extract concessions out of the international community, financial, um, and to basically push Israel into uh, uh, negotiating over the remaining 13 points in dispute on the blue line. Um, kind of what they did leading up to the maritime border deal, where the Lebanese government would adopt a position, Hezbollah would threaten war, knowing that the Americans and the Israelis wanted to avoid war, and that would bring them a, to the table and B, to, to Lebanon's positions. That's how it worked all the way up until, you know, we got the deal on October 7th, uh, 27th, 2022. Yeah, and, and obviously that deal, that maritime deal is, it's controversial now. This was actually also brokered by Amos Hochstein and uh, it was supposed to restrain uh, Hezbollah to some extent or another. And we've seen anything other than restraint uh, over the last four months. You know, as we talk about this, I noticed you didn't say anything about UNIFIL. Uh, the mm -hmm. UN International Forces in Lebanon. This is supposed to be an organization to prevent Hezbollah mm -hmm. from amassing uh, uh, force along the blue line, to prevent it from operating and, uh, and attacking Israel. It is just nowhere to be found here. How, mm -hmm. how do we explain what's going on? Mm -hmm. Look, um, at the end of the day, again, UNIFIL in theory is a good idea. Um, just like Diplomacy, diplomatic options are a good idea. UN Security Council Resolution 1701 imposed certain duties upon Lebanon, and they are duties. They're not negotiable bargaining chips like the Lebanese are using them. Restrain your, uh, control your territory, control your borders. Um, at most, disarm Hezbollah at minimum, push them north of the Litani. The Lebanese were supposed to send 15,000 troops to the south, and UNIFIL was supposed to buttress that with not just a buttressed 
force, but also a buttressed mandate. Like you've noted, it's been 18 years now. That's a lifetime. Uh, we've seen no impact. In many cases, uh, if we recall during Operation Northern Shield, when Israel uncovered uh, some of the tunnels that were leading from Lebanon into Israel, Hezbollah's attack tunnels, some of these were dug right near uh, UNIFIL positions. Now, this takes me back to the second Lebanon war, where some Hezbollah positions were also right next to UNIFIL's positions. So again, if prior to 1701, post-1701, prior to this more robust mandate, after the ro more robust mandate, we're seeing no difference. I think it's about time that we admit that UNIFIL's mandate um, can't, can't be implemented as envisioned uh, and that uh, we shouldn't take a false sense of security in the fact that it exists. Well, I mean, should we dismantle it? I mean, there's been a lot of talk right now about dismantling UNRWA, given how it has been complicit in the activities of Hamas. One could argue here that, that uh, UNIFIL has been complicit in the activities of Hezbollah. They seem to be operating alongside those Radwan forces mm -hmm. that continue mm -hmm. to threaten Israel is, I mean, do you think that's the answer? I don't know if we're seeing complicity necessarily. I think we're seeing complacency and helplessness. I think we're seeing the fact that Hezbollah are able to run laps uh, around UNIFIL given the UNIFIL's, the constraints on UNIFIL, despite its more upgraded mandate, despite its ability to conduct patrols uh, un un unannounced. Um, so what, what I think from the Israeli perspective, or even from the American perspective, there's one benefit that UNIFIL offers, and that's these uh, periodic tripartite uh, uh, deconfliction meetings. Is that worth what we're sinking in? Is that worth, I think now, the 10,000 forces that we have in UNIFIL putting their lives at risk um, on, on a front line that they, they can't restrain? Um, they have not been able to, you know, any, any idea that UNIFIL has been the, uh, the speed bump that has prevented Hezbollah and Israel from going to war is not factual. So I think those are the two things that you have to weigh. Um, is this deconfliction mechanism worth the funds that are being sunk in, the false sense of security we get from UNIFIL's presence, and the risk to these troops' forces? And does it provide cover or even legitimacy for Hezbollah to operate there? I mean, people are sort of ignoring the fact that there's a complete total violation of a UN Security Council resolution and no one's doing anything about it. I guess we'll talk about that uh, in uh, in the weeks and months to come. Last question for you here. What do you think the outlook is for Israel? I mean, we haven't really talked about those northern communities that have been vacated by the attacks by Hezbollah, those drones in Israeli airspace, the anti-tank missile attacks that are ongoing. There's been something like 600 of those. What is the Israeli outlook here? What do we expect? Look, I think this kind of ties back into the potential for a diplomatic deal to be achieved and to be effective. Um, at the end of the day, like we said, Lebanon can't restrain Hezbollah. An international force can't restrain Hezbollah. So let's assume you actually do achieve a diplomatic deal that pushes Hezbollah you know, seven to 10 kilometers north, even let's say north of the Litani. What's the guarantee that they won't come back in a year? in two years when the buildup that they've, they've invested in for the past 18 years, at least since after 2006, definitely even before that is primarily in the South. It's on Israel's border. You don't really abandon your assets uh, and leave them permanently just because of some, you know, ephemeral benefit. Um, so that, I think that's, that's the issue. And for, um, from, from the Israeli side, uh, that means that unless Hezbollah, a permanent solution is, is devised for, for the problem that Hezbollah poses, you're going to have to send back something upwards of 80,000 citizens uh, to live with the threat of an October 7th from a far more lethal force every day on the border. And, and you've been up to the border, John, right? Some of these communities you can see on the other side. You can see the whites in the eyes of the person who wants to kill you. Uh, that's not a way to live. 
uh, especially when you know you don't have any strategic depth when your backyard is often the international border um, now that's the long term in the interim i think we can expect hezbollah to hold to its word that uh, they will continue these attacks uh, until a ceasefire in gaza occurs will they escalate I would say that at this point, we're not going to see a unilateral escalation from Hezbollah. Um, at the same time, that does not mean that, you know, if you kill a senior member of the Jihad Council, uh, that, you know, that can't spiral into something much bigger. Uh, so that's that's something to keep an eye on. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you, David Daoud, for joining us today on the FTD Morning Brief. Thank you, John. Okay, here's what FTD is tracking today. My colleagues Mark Dubowitz and David Adesnik have a piece in the Daily Mail outlining how President Biden's retaliations against Iranian proxies may be playing directly into the strategy of Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei. They argue it's not enough to simply kill the Syrian, Iraqi, and Yemeni militiamen who do Tehran's dirty work. They say it's time to deliver some direct blows to the IRGC, the revolutionary guards who make up the backbone of the Iranian war machine. My colleague Cliff May sat down with Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, Dr. Celeste Wallander, for a conversation about Russia's war against Ukraine, what's at stake, the role of our European allies, and what victory or defeat would entail. You can check out that event on FTD's website or via the FTD Events podcast, which, by the way, is where you can also find past episodes of this show, the FTD Morning Brief. And finally, if you want to learn more about what's happening on Israel's northern border, check out today's FDD event. It will feature Jonathan Conricus, the former IDF international spokesman and current FDD senior fellow. It will also feature Eyal Hulata, Israel's former national security advisor, and FDD's inaugural senior international fellow. Both of them have appeared here, as you may recall, on the morning brief. They'll be joined by my talented colleague, Enya Kravin, for a conversation moderated by NBC's Anna Schechter. You can watch the live stream at ftd.org events. Okay, that's it for today. Read our expert analysis on our website, ftd.org. Read our quick takes on X at FTD and support our work with a tax-deductible donation at ftd.org invest. Thank you for joining us today. I'll see you bright and early on Monday for another episode. Until then... I'm Jonathan Shanzer, signing off for FTD.